Hey, everybody. It is episode 78 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is piping in. Hey, Steve. Hello, podcast world. We are, as always, excited to be coming back at you. We've got a very fascinating guest today, and he's in the room with me, which is cool. Dr. Noah Moose is going to be our interview guest. We're going to do a little bit of, we're not necessarily going to call it a series, but we're going to be covering different perspectives, medical perspectives on how runners can stay healthy. So we've got a few different practitioners that we're planning to bring on over the next several months. And Dr. Moose is the first of those. He is a chiropractor by training. He is one that is on my medical team that, uh, that I've alluded to before. And he's going to be talking about his practice, both chiropractic work that he does, but also he's really big into alternative and integrated medicine that I think has some really fascinating takeaways for, for our runners. So we're going to be bringing on Dr. Moose in a second. He's also was the, was the kind of one of the medical practitioners we used with the Rogue Athletic Club when we had our elite team going. So he's an, uh, a provider who has worked with all levels of athletes from, from the slow ones like me to, uh, to the fastest. You know, Chris, elite, when I first, uh, for years now, Dr. Moose has been my go-to when, things, when, when no one can figure out what's going on. And it always makes me think every single time, why the hell didn't I use Dr. Moose in the first place? <laughs> I, had yeah. an, I have an athlete who was literally given two different recommendations of surgery for a, a knee issue that she's had for a bit. And um, she's now run, back to running. If she can keep from tripping and falling on her knee, she'll be pretty good. But she keeps, she's back to running without having any surgery because of the kind of work that Dr. Moose does and the variety of, of, of the ways that he looks at things. So I'm really excited about this and I'm, I'm happy for our listeners to get um, a bit of a different take on what is medicine in the U.S. For sure. So we'll bring Dr. Moose on in just a second. We're going to start with our normal intro. We've got a couple of topics to cover for a, a fairly short intro as far as intros go for us, but we wanted to first cover off on some track Track updates as the summer track season, especially in Europe, really kicks up. One of the predictions I made, Steve, earlier in the year on our podcast was that Emma Coburn would be beaten at some point by another American this year. And we had Emma's debut on the track for the steeplechase, at least, this year at the Rome Diamond League meet recently. And she is in fine form. So my prediction is looking questionable at best at this point. She debuted in 9.08 to get near to nearly get the win. And that was after falling over the final barrier. She kind of came in a little hot and was sandwiched between two Kenyan athletes and just stumbled coming off that final water jump. So ended up not getting the win and finished fourth, I believe, in that race. But with a debut or fastest debut ever of 908, even after the fall, telling us that she was on form from Rome. And then this, this week, she was in Oslo at the Bisla Games and she got second. But that was after having to deal with a, one of the hurdles being adjusted to the men's height, 36 inches instead of 30 inches. And so she was waving her hands and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, trying to alert the officials that 
the barrier was at the wrong height and eventually they were able to adjust it. But I guess they went over it three times for three laps before they were able to get it down while the race was going, they were making adjustments. And so it's one, at one point it was like halfway down and then all the way down, they moved it around the track a little bit to try to get a safe situation, but just absolutely crazy. But she ran nine Oh nine in spite of all of that to get second in that race. So she is clearly on form, Steve. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, she's, you know, I still think your prediction could be correct because Courtney Freerix is, looks really, I mean, she definitely got impacted. She debuted at Oslo at Bislett, um, and she definitely was impacted by that barrier. It seemed like a lot more. Uh, one of the things that happens, I mean, six inches is a huge difference in terms of the barrier height. Um, which I've always thought is a little bit weird why the women's is so much lower, but it is what it is at this point, And I would hate for them to change things. But, um, I think that one of the key things here is, uh, Courtney will be better. She debuted and, you know, she debuted at nine twenty, and she, as we saw at the world champs, she got better every race as the season went on. And that's sort of the way her training program has been laid out. But with all that said, Chris, I mean, Emma is on fire. I mean. Kiang, who she got second to at Bislett, she was the Olympic silver medalist and she was um, bronze at world champs in the year before that. So she's really and legitimate. She seems to be in a really good spot. But Emma, Emma seems like she's she and her husband, Joe Broussard, have the have her plan set. And, you know, last year, one thing a lot of people didn't realize was it was her first full year with a new coach. And that's hard to do. And so now in this second full year with her new coach, her, her coach who happens to be her husband, who in the interest of full disclosure is a product of the Colorado system and is probably doing things very, very similar to what she was doing um, with Heather Burroughs and um, uh, Mark Wetmore. So, but still, I think that this is a very good sign for Emma. She's going to you know, this year is probably a great year for her to be super aggressive, especially after the U.S. champs, because she's a world champ now. She needs to take advantage of that. And she also needs to be able to put herself in a good position for next year's world champs to be sure that she's solidified that she is one of the top in the world, which going into last year's world championships wasn't a given. Right. And now I feel like with these two races, damn, Chris, she is just putting it down and making everybody realize that she is the world champion, which is great to see. Yeah, super impressive results from Emma. Shows that her and Joe have it figured out. I mean, her stated goal this year is to try to break nine minutes, which she would break her own American record to do that, be the first American under nine minutes. I think she had wanted to have a chance to do that in Oslo, but that was derailed by the crazy barrier situation which is really unfortunate, but she'll have other shots. So we'll see. But it definitely looks like she's going to be dominating again at USA's, but we will see. Courtney has a little bit of time to try to sharpen sharpen things up. And of course, sadly, it seems like Colleen Quigley is on the mend right now. Steeple Squigs has been in the pool a lot, dealing with a potential stress reaction in her foot. So she... Yeah, I saw on Instagram that she got a 10-miler in, but so she's not it was definitely a reaction and not a fracture to whatever was happening with her but yeah. i doubt that we'll see her at usa's we'll see but we hope she heals quickly so we can get that us steeple competition heating up 
All right, so switching gears to our, to our final intro topic. This is something we haven't talked about a lot, so I'm curious to get your perspective. But as we mentioned on our last episode, Hayward Field, which is the great historic track in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon, is set to be demolished soon. In fact, the basically the last races there are being held this weekend at NCAA championships there. And there's a lot of nostalgia about that because that's the historic track, of course, where Steve Prefontaine did all of his magic and and um you know and others. And so there's kind of an interesting battle building over demolishing this historic track it to replace it with a brand new modern facility to host the world championships in 2021 and ironically it's pitted phil knight who is founder of nike and multi-billionaire against some of his own people in a way including tinker hatfield who is a longtime nike designer who was one of the first designers of of, of their early running shoes, but also things like Jordan, you know, Michael Jordan's first shoes at Nike, and he had gotten involved in the renovation project, was on the side of preserving the grandstands as much as possible, but ultimately has been vetoed, and others have also been vetoed by Phil Knight in favor of tearing things down. And so there's just some interesting tensions there. And it's ironic that a guy like Phil Knight, who is clearly steeped in the history of that place, has fallen on the side of tearing down history. But he's the guy putting up most of the money for the renovation. And so ultimately, <laughs> the man with the money gets to make the decisions. And and thing, it looks like things are coming, are coming down because otherwise, no project probably gets done. And certainly, they can't host worlds in in the current state of that of that stadium so what's your take on this whole debate whether you should save hayward or not save hayward hayward are you nostalgic about it at all well i'll tell you this chris in my lifetime i've watched a lot of track meets and although i haven't been to europe one of these years i'm going to have to take a my father and I have been talking many years about taking a European vacation and going and watching races at four or five or six of the of the various, um, you know, Zurich, Bislett, um, going to different places to watch these meets. But in my experience, watching a meet in the East Grandstand um, of Hayward Field is like no other experience you will ever have in your life. When that side starts banging on the uh there's a tradition as the distance runners come through each lap that the east grandstand which would we would normally call in most tracks what would they call the back stretch or the the section between the 100 meter mark on the track and the 200 meter mark on the track that iconic stretch has just been um an incredibly powerful and impactful thing in the sport of track and field in the US for so many years and it saddens me greatly and deeply to consider and to think that that experience um, will not be the same. But Chris, my view about this and almost all things in the world is that East Grandstand is fucking ancient. It is crazy to me that you could even get when I'm there, when I have been there many years for the NCAA championships, they held it there so many years. They would put the athletes over on that side in a one little 
section of it. And there's no room anywhere on that side of the track. So if you want, the key thing here is what is what does Hayward Field want to be? Does it want to host the world championships and perhaps at some point in time, something even bigger? Is it even possible to conceive of that? I mean, Eugene couldn't host the world, couldn't host the Olympics, but it is to host something as big as a world championships. If they're going to do that, that East Grandstand is not doable. And so if you're going to make a change, you might as well change all the way. And then it will be up to the actual fans at those meets to create the kind of energy and flow to make sure that East Grandstand stays that kind of iconic place for distance running in the U.S. I think that's still capable. That'll be up to the fans. And I kind of side with Phil here. If you're going to go after this world championship, if it's going to happen, if it's going to be, it has to be a new renovated facility that's going to be able to manage and handle that many people to watch a meet. Of course, there begs the other question. I've been to Eugene many times. Can Eugene even handle that many people? And a lot of people say that it can't, but they host Pac-12 football games in that town all the time. And that's going to be, those are bigger games than what our world championships are. So I'm convinced that this is just what has to happen in the name of, 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 of change. Do I want there to be change? No. But if change is going to happen, I kind of stand on this side with Phil. and basically. It's his fucking money, Chris. You know what I mean? And he's part of that tradition and crucial to that tradition. And so I say it's his right. Bowerman's sons don't have anything to do with anything. Steve Prefontaine's sisters, who the hell are they? Why do they have any right to have any statement at all? They are not the people. They were not athletes at the university, and nor are they the people who have brought Nike to such prominence and put and honestly put Eugene on the map when it comes to this. Bill Bowerman, sure. Steve Prefontaine, sure. But not their progeny. Fuck that shit. I don't think they should have any vote in it at all. And I'm confident that Phil Knight is going to try to do the very best he can to create and and make the best experience he can possibly make. So, you know, I'm not a big Phil Knight fan generally. Most people know that. But I don't know how anybody can say it's anybody else's right to do it other than his. And and there's no way you're going to be able to preserve the East Grandstand in any way, shape, or form if you're going to do make it unique. Um, now, the other thing that people have been talking about, you know, is basically they don't want something sleek and glitzy. They want something that's Eugene, dude. I don't know what they're fucking talking about. I lived in Eugene for a lot of years, and I go there all the time. That place is a fucking that place is a joke. That town is a joke. It's a beautiful place. But if it's going to be something Eugene, it's going to be grungy like the like the East Grandstand currently is. And that's not going to happen. They're not going to be able to host a world championship in something that's Eugene. It has to be something sleek and glitzy. And I do feel confident that Phil Knight will do his very best to try to put something in place that will have an iconic feel of what the university needs and what the city that city brings. But I mean, you need something, Eugene. Good luck. I mean, the Wild Duck is not the is not Eugene anymore. It's like everything's changed there. It's no longer going to be the same. And here are people who will not who continue to believe that things are going to have to stay in an old way. It's just not the way of the world. Um, and I trust Phil to try to get it as right as possible. Um, so that's my take on it. Very well articulated take. I mean, basically for what? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> And basically, that's what Phil says. If you read the articles, he basically came to the conclusion through the people he hired and that committee hired to assess 
the structural integrity of the East Grandstand. He basically came to the conclusion that there was no way to save it and and be able to do what they wanted to do. It was just too old, too decrepit, too too structurally questionable, and that the only way to really do it right was to tear it all down. Now, there are others that disagree, Tinker Hack Hatfield being one of them, who says that there are ways to do it where you could just reinforce that structure. But, you know, it, you know, as, as somebody who's followed Nike's story and knows a little bit about how Phil thinks, he doesn't like to do small things. He likes to do big things, and you know I think he, he it seems like he came to view that East Grandstand as a constraint for making it a really really impactful project. And if his money is on the line, and they're saying that potentially he's donating over two hundred million dollars to the to the cause to rebuild that stadium, I can guarantee you that it's going to be done in an amazing and powerful and impactful way. It'll be new, and it won't have that same history and heritage, so to speak, but it'll be a place that will allow us to create new history and heritage that will elevate our sport to an even higher level. There will be some people that probably don't like the Nike elements that come into play with it. I'm sure that you know that those fingerprints will be on on the place, but but it's it's going to be a place where you're going to be able to make new memories and have massive meets. I mean, 20, 20 plus thousand fans watching a track meet in the U.S. is unheard of, certainly in today's time. And so to have the ability to do that at the new Hayward, I think is going to create new stories that will help our sport. And Chris, it's up, as I said, it's up to the fans to make that iconic East Grandstand. It was the people banging on the on those seats. It was the people clapping their hands. It was the people yelling that really made that area iconic. Not the actual wood, not the actual shell, in my opinion. And so I think that um, it would be a very big shame if people didn't um, didn't support it in some way and tried to create, continue to create that energy and to make that stadium so iconic and so amazing for what it is. Well, we will be in. We will be there if 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 we can. Certainly, in at the World Champs in twenty twenty one. Absolutely, and can't wait to see. Can't wait to see the new, the new Hayward. Certainly, we've got a lot of good memories at the old Hayward, but I'm excited for the new Hayward. All right, so with that, we'll end our intro and bring our guest on, Doctor Noah Moose. All right, we're going to welcome Doctor Noah Moose to the show. How's it going, sir? Hey, Chris. How's it going, man? Good to see you. And as we teed up in our intro, we'll be talking to Dr. Moose about his practice as a chiropractor officially, but really, as we were just talking and as before we got on, he's really sort of a witch doctor. He's, he's, <laughs> uh, he's getting to a lot of cool things and I think has some insights that you don't necessarily get from traditional medicine. So hoping that those listening can learn from that. Before we jump into the questions, I did want to tell one story just to give you a little bit of credibility with our audience, which is my first Dr. Moose experience. And I had known you because you were our one of our medical advisors with our elite athlete team, Team Rogue Elite, which became Rogue Athletic Club that Steve coached. And so we got to know you through that. And 
knew that you knew your shit from working and helping keep our elite athletes running, but I'd never actually been to you as a patient. I don't know if you remember the first time I came, but it happened on the back of a trail race that I did where I sprained my left ankle, but kept running. It was a 25K race. Sprained it within the first three miles, kept running on it about mile nine because I was compensating so badly for the ankle. It it was like somebody hit me in the back of the right leg, the opposite side with the baseball bat. I thought I had just shredded my hamstring to the point where I suddenly re- you know, went from running to a complete stop and then barely hobbled back to the finish line from there and basically couldn't walk. My left ankle was sprained. I thought my right hamstring was completely shredded. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go see this Dr. Moose guy and see what he's <laughs> all about. I'd heard some crazy stories. And so I walk into your office, hobbling in, barely able to walk, thinking that I had torn my hamstring. And, you know, you, you throw me up on the table and, you, and we'll get into a little bit more of your methods later, but you kind of did your initial assessment and then you're like, you told me to pretty quickly roll over. And I was like, okay. So I flip over. And after a few minutes of doing your thing, you're like, your femurs rolled out or rotated out of place on the right side. And I'm like, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah, your femurs completely rotated out of place, which I guess it happened because of the compensation. You made a quick adjustment, which wasn't that painful, but was just kind of a short, intense pressure that I felt back there. And then you're like, all right, get up. Let's walk. Let's see how you walk around on that was suddenly walking normally and running again the next day. And so I was a believer ever <laughs> since that moment that, uh, that there was some kind of magic happening in Dr. Moose's office. And uh, even though his methods are sometimes funny on the surface, they work. <laughs> so we'll get into all of that in a second, but did want to give that little story for our audience about uh, the way I became a believer. And I've been seeing you ever since as part of my medical team, I call it on, on the, uh, I think, I think on it's the show for, for every athlete and every, um, runner, you know, to have that kind of group of people that you can go to. And it's just, you know, it's not one, you need, you need a team. I think that's a really good thing is, is, you know, I look at it as, as we can bring something to the table, but I think for every athlete, you've got to build a, a team of people around you that you can trust that can help you to, to get to your goals. So I think it's really important to build that team. Yeah. So I've got Dr. Moose on the team. I've got a few others as well that I work with, physical therapists and others. So anyway, but let's go to your background. We'll start on the non-medical side. You're a runner growing up. So tell us about your running history, how you got into the sport and how it's evolved for you over time. Yeah, so I, uh, I mean, I started running probably about junior high, um, maybe similar to a lot of people. Uh, started playing other sports and realized that I, you know, had a little bit of talent in in the running area, and so kind of parlayed that into you know doing cross country and track in high school, and um, you know making a couple state championships and doing those things. And then I went on to run at a junior college in Kansas for a couple years, and then after that went uh, transferred out to a small school in Western Kansas uh, called Fort Hay State University. Um, they have a pretty pretty good distance running program out there for the D two level, and so. Um, basically, you know, spent my, spent my time like running in high school, college and running for me has really just kind of been like one of those Zen things where it's on top of, you know, it being kind of a performance aspect. It's just, it's kind of my time to meditate as I, so I've, I've kind of kept that as part of my like daily routine as well. And, and really find it, you know, almost therapeutic for me to, to get out, clear my head, do some thinking, 
you know, kind of meditate on some of the the ideas that I've got going in my <laughs> head. It just gives me a, a space to clear. So, so yeah, I ran all through high school and uh, and college and and did that. So yeah, yeah. And now it's more your Zen place. You, you were pretty fast back in the day, but <laughs> I, I know that speed has waned a little bit as your training has become a little more mellow. Yeah, yeah. So you know. Ran, ran some good times back in the day and was was you know pretty competitive and you know I think I I you know two outdoor track championships two indoor and two cross country uh, national championships competed at so yeah. it uh you know it, it was it, it was fun but yeah now now I kind of look at it as as just kind of my my escape so yeah <laughs> but you're not even the fastest per- but you're not even the fastest person in your house are you no, I'm not. My wife is uh, is uh, you know, she was the the former school record holder at the the University of Georgia and a Olympic trials finalist. And yeah, she's I, I still kind of train with her now, so I I get my butt kicked on a regular basis just trying to keep up with her. So <laughs> Natalie uh, is an amazing athlete for sure in her own right, and and works in your practice, which we can talk about the. But now let's switch to your background, you know, as a medical provider. How did you get into it? What does your training look like? And how has that evolved to what you do today? Yeah, so uh actually I got introduced to what I do um growing up. I had uh we had a a practitioner that had, you know, helped me with some things when I was actually running in high school. I'd actually had a knee injury that nobody could fix and uh you know, they were I was actually supposed to have surgery on that knee. And I actually ended up running into to this guy at a, at a track meet. And he's like, hey, Noah, why aren't you running? And I was like, well, I've got this knee issue. I can't really run. I think we're going to have to do surgery and all that. And he's like, well, just he's like, I think I can help you with that right now. And, he, and so he kind of gets my parents over there, you know, kind of like Chris described, works <laughs> on me for about 15 minutes, works on my knee. And after that, I'm, I'm running up and down the track and uh, like no pain and kind of like, man. And I think at that point, I was like, this is what I've got to do. I was like, this, this is it. So that's kind of how I got introduced to it. And so kind of my background then, you know, ended up, uh, like studied exercise science, um, exercise physiology and sports nutrition through college. Um, cause nutrition has always been a big passion of mine. And then went on to chiropractic school at, um, Logan university in St. Louis. And then, uh, while I was going through school, I actually, um, had the opportunity to, to study, um, acupuncture and Chinese medicine at the Acupuncture Society of America with Dr. Richard Yenny, who he's kind of one of the guys that's credited with spreading acupuncture through the U.S. He trained, you know, 20 or 30 doctors or 20 or 30,000 doctors in acupuncture and Chinese medicine over his time. And actually in 2012, uh, he just he recently had, uh, passed away. But in 2012, he actually took a group of about 40 of us um, that he hand selected over to China to be a part of the second Beijing um, International Symposium on Integrated Medicine. And we spent about three weeks over there after the conference where we were doing some uh, rounds in the hospitals. We were at the Qigong Medical Research Institute in Beijing. Um, So we got to spend, kind of immerse myself in this kind of Eastern medicine culture. So it was awesome to get to study with with Dr. Yenny before, you know, his passing and all of that and got to pick up a lot of his good pearls and then to go over to China and see how they kind of apply it in more of a traditional setting on a, on a day-to-day basis where I kind of walked into some of the hospitals and it made me feel good. Cause I was like, you know, it's like, I don't feel so different. It's like, they're doing, you know, some of these things in the hospitals and all of that. They've just, they've got a little bit of a different approach to, to how they do things. So, um, 
And then I've just continued to, to study and try to learn um, in my continuing education, everything from nutrition, uh, neurology, brain-based care, a lot of those kind of things to just continue to expand my horizon. So, you know, because you never know what's going to walk in. I mean, my practice kind of consists of, you know, like athletes and people training. And then, you know, the other half of it is all the things that nobody else can fix. So, um, or people with all kinds of crazy conditions, it's like, you just never know what's going to walk in. So I keep just trying to study, you know, through continuing education to expand my knowledge base to be able to kind of help the community and help, you know, whatever walks in the door. So what would you consider are your modalities, if that's the right word? Obviously, you've, you've been trained in chiropractic care. You've been trained in acupuncture. What else would you consider would be in your sort of medical quiver if there are names names and labels yeah. for them? Yeah. So one of the, the big things that we do a lot of is what's called applied kinesiology. Essentially, that's kind of working with the, the muscles. So there's a whole like systematic approach to um, the muscles and the connection to that. Um, we have also studied um, what's called quantum neurology. And essentially, that's kind of looking at how uh, basically the whole nervous system influences a lot of the, the body. So looking at the, the, the nerve muscle connection, the, how the, the brain and the, like the cranial nerves and the sensory nerves all integrate in because take something like a, like a sprained ankle or something like that, right? You, you know, you definitely, while you have some structural stuff, there can be some sensory components. Um, there can be some proprioceptive components, things that also need restored in there. And so I think that's a cool thing about um, the quantum neurology that it allows us to look at outside of just, you know, the musculoskeletal, but we can look at some of the sensory components and things like that, that your body may be, that may be adapting that aren't letting you recover as well. And so, so yeah, the applied kinesiology, looking at the, the muscle meridian connection um, and, and being able to kind of get a systematic approach for, for checking and balancing all the muscles as well, too. So Noah, you, you've got this, uh, you got this thing that when I first met you, I met you, um, I don't remember if we met in Austin first or if I met, I just remember the first time I saw you in action was at the U.S. Championships in Des Moines, Iowa in a hotel room. You had Kara June, who I was coaching at the time with Team Rogue Elite, who was a steeplechaser, who we got up on the, I remember when I took her over to your office, I was like, over to your hotel room, I was like, suspend belief. <laughs> just <laughs> don't don't freak just go in and you know she was a little banged up we, she kept having you know, i think you remember she had a lot of lower back issues hip issues and and things over throughout her career when she was running with us um but when she got up on the table you did a couple of different things to check strength and other things and then you used um what i like to call your donald duck belt your quack machine it goes <laughs> quack 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 Explain what that um, the disc on your belt is and what is it all about and, and how are you using that to try to determine the things that happen or what's going on with the athletes you're working with? Yeah, so, so, that, so basically in Chinese medicine, when your body has injured tissue, it's going to shunt more of the, the electrical current to that area. The Chinese call it the qi. And so basically, when you have an injury, your body's going to build up that it's going to try to draw your healing factors to that area, your red blood cells, your white blood cells, your vitamins, your minerals, the platelets, all those things have an electrical charge in the body. And so in Chinese medicine, what they've discovered is your body, like there's a current of injury. And so what we do basically is the little instrument on, that, that I use that, that, yeah, everybody refers to as the turkey collar or the duck collar or <laughs> stuff like that. It, uh, it basically is just a stress tissue detector. 
So it doesn't treat anything. It doesn't do anything like that. It just allows us to gather more information about what's going on in the body. So while it looks kind of like a little, a little different on the outside, it's really just a way for us to gather more information on top of the, you know, like you said, the typical, like, you know, we do our typical orthopedic neuromuscular evaluation. We do all of that. It's just another layer that I've, I've seen used and, and had great success with um, to be able to hone in on things. So it's like, yeah, if you've got an issue with the back, oftentimes it's not just your back. It could be a knee, an ankle, a foot. And it prevents, it, it presents us a way to like quickly analyze different areas of the body that may be affected. And then we can go to the area and say, you know, what's going on? Okay, what's going on? We got this back. There's an ankle thing going on here. What's going on? Is there a bone out of place? Is there a muscle knot that's, that's not working correctly? Is there some type of an acupuncture point that we need to treat to, to strengthen up that whole meridian connection to that area? You know, what, what do we need to do to balance out that, that whole thing? So really, it's just, it's just a, a stress tissue detector is, is, is to make it a, a more, more simple way to, to put it. So that's all we're looking at is, is what areas the body is, is signaling that there could be some stress in. So it's just a way for us to gather more information. I was talking to one of your patients recently, and we were sharing stories about the quacking thing. I mean, it looks like a, a little, almost like a, a belt buckle that you're <laughs> wearing on your belt, but it's bigger and shinier, and you're kind of strumming it with your hand as you're moving your other hand over the body to detect these areas of issue, and it makes noises that we're hearing, like, wah, 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 wah. and... uh but but this patient said they were talking to you about it and that you that, that the sound is less important versus the feeling you're getting through the disc. Yeah, so it it just creates a little bit of a resistance on there as well. And so it's it's just kind of that like that that resistance and drag that let us know that there's some type of a stress going on in that area. So um so that that's kind of what we're looking for. I'm looking for more of the the feel. It just happens that when oh, like on the plating when you drag your hand over or it sticks, it makes that kind of that, that turkey collar thing. So <laughs> it's always funny. I, I grew up in, uh, as we talked about, I grew up in, in Kansas. And so, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm from hunting and fishing land and all that. And I got, you know, buddies that hunt and fish and they're always like, Hey man, bring that, bring that thing out. And we'll, we'll go turkey hunting with it, man. It's like, it's like, you're like the best, like, like turkey collar out there. You could help us get some, get some turkey and stuff like that. So so where did you learn to use that? Because obviously that's not taught in chiropractic no, school. Um, actually, uh, uh, one of the guys that I ended up um, learning from and studying um, some applied kinesiology, he actually um, had, had used that. One of the things, he was doing a lot of muscle testing and things like that. And uh, he had a patient that was in a car wreck. And they actually weren't able, because of the, the injury, they weren't able to really test the muscles that well because of the, the physical state of the, of the patient. And so he started working with different avenues and things like that to be able to try to figure out, you know, how he could get some indication of, of what was going on in the tissue. And so he'd done a lot of studying and all of that and, and then developed a whole system related to, to that. And it's, you know, it's been, been a, you know, a fairly reliable system for gathering more information. And, you know, I've, and so I've just kind of adopted it from, from that. Huh. It's crazy. It's, it's really fascinating to watch and amazing what you can learn as having observed you use that tool without patients having to indicate what's happening, you're able to find it through this crazy little <laughs> duck collar on your, on your, on your belt. And it does raise the question. We've talked on this show about injury and how athletes need to have a medical team and take ownership of their injury. But, you know, and my wife's an MD, a medical doctor. And so I think sometimes 
people think we bash MDs because a lot of times orthopedic orthopedic surgeons, those in traditional medicine don't aren't able to solve some of our problems as runners in soft tissue because they're used to dealing with joints and and abrupt issues, acute injury where you might have a, a tear, a break, something that's more obvious or that could be detected through easy imaging. And so we encourage people to find a physical therapist, to find a chiropractor, to find some alternative sources as well, because it takes a village to keep you healthy. And sometimes those traditional medical doctors don't have the same training or perspective on some of the issues that runners deal with that some of these alternative providers have. Why is that? Why has traditional Western medicine failed us a little bit on some things? And, you know, I don't necessarily think that they've failed us on anything. I, I think that, you know, every form of medicine has their strengths or weaknesses. Um, I think, and, and that's, I think that's why it's important to have a team. But one of the things, and this has kind of been my, my kind of perception of it is, is, you know, like the, the traditional like orthopedists and stuff like that, they're great with like, like surgeries and breaks and fractures and traumatic injuries. And that's kind of what they specialize in. And then, you know, if they, if they see more of like a soft tissue type approach, Typically, their thing is going to be to refer to to a physical therapist. And in my experience, what the physical therapist or the movement people are doing is they're looking at global motion, right? They're saying, okay, your ankle isn't moving like it's supposed to. Your knee or your hip isn't moving like it's supposed to. They're looking at, at basically the global motion of a joint. And, and so that what they're going to do is they're going to provide different types of exercise exercises, do some certain releases, do things like that. What I and then the layer down is kind of what I look at, like what I do, and this is where I think what I do differs a little bit than like a general PT or things like that. Is I'm looking at like intersegmental motion. So you know why the the shoulder joint isn't moving like it's supposed to. I want to know, okay, that that how is that that you know the head of the humerus like articulated in that joint? Where is it getting stuck? What movement is not working? Instead of just, oh, you know, you have reduced range of motion in the shoulder, let's do some exercises to get that, that shoulder moving. I'm like, where is it stuck? Where is it impinged? What muscles in and around that shoulder are, are, are not working? You know, what, which ones are firing too much? Which ones are firing too little? How do we create a balance in that, in that joint? So that, that's kind of where I, I feel like that those are kind of the three areas, right? Like you have the medicine that's really good with like acute traumatic stuff. The PTs can actually help you to develop good movement patterns. And then what I kind of think, you know, what I would consider myself like the specialist in is like the, the intersegmental motion. You know, how is the all the bones in the in the foot and the ankle moving together? How are the, you know, how is the, the, the knee and all of that tracking? How is that? So looking at the tracking and movement of each individual like bone joint articulation, and then all the muscles and soft tissue around that and turning basically looking muscles firing too much too little, or if there's like adhesion or those kind of things. So that's that's kind of the way I see it as as different. And so it's it's important to find out like, what your problem is. And so I think that's where like different levels of evaluation, because, you know, oftentimes, we'll do some work with people and say, you know what, you're you're pretty good in this area, you actually need to, you know, have some of your movement patterns strengthened up. And so we'll refer them to PT. Or, you know, I had a, a kid come in that he had a hamstring issue and we start testing it when they had just maxed out on squats, right? And, and did a couple like treatments on him. And I was like, you know what? I was like, I think there's a partial tear in your hamstring. So we sent him out for an MRI. And yeah, you know, sure enough, there was a partial tear. 
And I was like, well, there's not much I can do for that, but we have, uh, you know, some orthopedics that do regenerative medicine. So we sent him over to do like PRP and stem cell injections in his hamstring. And within like three weeks on a torn hamstring, he's like back in the gym and sprinting pain-free because of, you know, basically just identifying what it is that they need. And so I think that that's where, where it is. It's identifying that level of care that you need. Is it, is it a movement pattern issue? Is something just stuck or is there like a trauma? Yeah. So Noah, so many, almost all of our listeners, I'm, I think there might be one or two out there who don't actually run. I don't know why. Maybe they just like how silky and sexy Chris's voice is. They like to, they want to hear him talk, you know, um, but almost <laughs> all of our listeners are runners. So talk a little bit about when somebody walks into your office and, you know, as you know, with all runners, they don't walk into somebody's office unless they're all fucked up right? Because runners <laughs> yeah. don't get help unless they're totally fucked up and they can't go do what they want to do. Sort of what's your like MO? How do you like your modus operandi? Why do you walk when they walk in your door? What's your brain doing being a runner, knowing some of the issues that are going on with them, you know, you know, as, as people who don't go get help right away. So what's your sort of standard go to with, with runners, with distance runners, does it change uh, by the athlete or does it change or do you sort of follow through some some first steps and sort of give us an idea how that plays out with the runners that you see in your practice? Okay, yeah. So the, the first thing I do is I kind of do a, a comprehensive evaluation like on the patient. So we'll do we'll, we'll kind of chat about them. I'll get an idea of what it is that they're that they're dealing with, what's going on. Like just from a like a communication standpoint, I try to make a checklist in my head of like, okay, they've got these symptoms. These typically correlate with this. But then what I do like after that is in my my exam, essentially we'll go through and we'll check every major muscle nerve connection in the body. And we'll look at every joint and kind of see which ones are playing. And then we do the, uh, you know, our, our, our scan to see, you know, other areas of stress tissue. So I can kind of develop a, a neuromuscular pattern that's showing up. We can see, you know, where we see like fixations in the joint. And then also if there's any other, you know, with the, with the instrument that we we're talking about before, any other type of like meridian or like chi, like imbalances that are going on. And so typically, and, and I think this is something cool about my, like my procedure that maybe um, isn't necessarily like in other people's, but every one of the muscles in Chinese medicine is related to a certain meridian. And the Chinese named each one of those meridians after certain organs or body system areas. So oftentimes what we un uncover when we go through this is, you know, I, I, I always joke that, you know, a lot of times the patients that I see have seen at least two, if not like 20 other practitioners. And so, you know, I know that they've been under good care and a lot of them come, you guys refer to great docs all the time and they come from good care. So a lot of times there's something else that something's missing. So when we do this muscle evaluation and kind of incorporate some of the, the Chinese medicine, you know, I can identify, you know, maybe is there a nutritional deficiency that's not allowing their body to heal? Uh, maybe there's something else going on where we need to get something else checked out, um, you know, to, to see what's like, what's not allowing them to heal. And so that gives us kind of a, a pattern of what's going on in each individual person. So that's the way I kind of approach it is, uh, is kind of doing this evaluation, I kind of collect some data, I kind of make an informed, an informed hypothesis about what's going on. And then I do my evaluation and say, you know, okay, I'm right on with my hypothesis or, you know, holy crap, I think this is completely different than what I actually thought was going on. What are the common things you see in runners? 
Okay, so I, I will say there, there's, there's one thing that I see, especially a, a, for caveat for all the female athletes, one of the things that I've seen in probably 80 to 90% of female endurance athletes that are basically of menstruating age is most of them are what we call athlete anemic. So when you look at blood work, and this is why a lot of women have trouble recovering or you know performing like they want to in endurance races is is they're actually uh, mildly anemic. And so when you look at a traditional blood value, basically what they're doing is they've created a, like a median range based off of science. And then the labs go two standard deviations from this kind of median norm of a healthy person. And so in order to be diagnosed as like anemic or something like that, you have to actually be two standard deviations from the norm as an average of sick people. And so a lot of people outside of that first standard deviation will actually start having issues with uh, fatigue, the muscles not responding. Obviously, we're runners, right? Like oxygen is at the, the forefront of what we're doing as, uh, as an athlete. So if you have impaired oxygen processing, your muscles aren't going to recover as well. Uh, your ligaments aren't going to you know, function how they should. Nothing's going to function. So one of the big things I see with a lot of our female athletes is we're needing to actually to, to allow them to heal and, and get to where they need to, we need to correct these, these mild anemias that are, a lot of times they're, they're leaving performance on the table and they're, uh, they're not, you know, not bad, you know, they're, they're not able to perform like they want to and, you know, uh, the, creating fatigue and all these other issues. And if it goes on for a long enough time, it just fatigues the body out. So I would say that's one huge thing is, is having somebody who knows that, like who will read blood work for an athlete and not a, uh, you know, not a normal person. And so a lot of times those are the people that get diagnosed. Oh, it's in, your, you know, it's just, it's in your, you know, your performance <laughs> stuff is, is, is in your head. But a lot of times there is a lot of underlying things that maybe, you know, they're, they're not quite sick, but they're not quite well. So that's a big thing. Or you're um, running 70 miles a week. Of course you're tired. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So what do you do in that situation? Is that just iron supplementation so, or are there other things? So uh, anemia is kind of one of those interesting things. I'm actually glad that you asked that question yeah. um, because a lot of people will initially say, you know, everybody thinks anemia, they think iron. That's kind of the big thing. There's actually, you know, uh, there's actually three different types of anemia. And so one of those, you know, there can be, you know, like a, a B12 and folate anemia. There can be a B6 anemia. Um, and so it's kind of identifying the, the pattern in the blood work and then being able to properly apply what, you know, what supplementation they need to correct that because it's not always iron. And a lot of runners are just, you know, they're just like, oh, just take some iron, you know, and actually sometimes when you look at a blood value in, uh, in an athlete, if you look, sometimes you know, I, I have patients that, that wear it like a point of pride, right? They come in and they're like, I was be like, you're anemic. And they're like, oh, that can't be my iron is like off the chart. <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay. I, um, so actually, when you have a high iron like that, it's actually a sign of an inflammatory process going on in the body. So runners like the, the higher the iron, the better, right? <laughs> and so they have this like a point of pride. So we have to like tell them, yeah, when you're when you're that high, when you're over this like this this range, and you see that high iron, that's actually a sign that there's another inflammatory process going in the body. And putting more iron in actually can make that problem worse at that time. So it's really important to kind of work through some of those caveats in there. It's crazy, which reminds me of the story when I was deficient <laughs> in vitamin D, which I'll tell quickly because I came in after having a stress fracture at Boston. I think I've shared that story on the podcast before. And we'd identified through an orthopedist that I'd fractured my calcaneus in the race. I'd been seeing you regularly and things had looked pretty good in my, you know, my regular visits to your office. And so you were kind of 
looking at things like, yeah, you have a stress fracture, but something's not quite right. You know, it doesn't quite add up why that would have happened. And so you left the room, came back in with, I think, four bottles, and you laid them on my stomach. And then you started uh, touching each bottle in turn and, and strumming the duck collar. And <laughs> by the third bottle, the thing started making noise. And you're like, immediately, you're like, oh, you're vitamin D deficient, which affects calcium absorption and so forth, which would help explain why I'd gotten the fracture. And but you went on to say, you know, the normal for the normal range is 30 and above if you would get a blood test typically. And you said, I think you're probably somewhere in the low 20s, like maybe like 22, you guessed. And of course, I'm like, this is freaking crazy. Like, there is no way. So I went straight from there to get my blood tested at one of the, you know, the any lab test now places. The result came back the next day that I was 23 vitamin D. So you were one off. <laughs> And, you know, you identified something that nobody else would have identified there. And so now I regularly supplement with, with vitamin D. And ultimately, we found out through genetic testing that I'm actually, I have a, a mutation in my vitamin D receptor gene, which is part of the reason why I was deficient. So now I kind of have to overcompensate in supplementation. And that's something you helped me figure out that nobody else would have even thought about. So... Let's talk a little bit about that since we're on this deficiency concept. What other deficiencies do you see in runners, vitamin D obviously being my example, that you know people need to be thinking about or worried about? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the, the, some of the big ones that we see are, are, are vitamin D and you know, iron is definitely up there. Um, and then finding a bioavailable form of iron is, is always, uh, always a challenge. Uh, typically, one of the other things, I, I think this is kind of an interesting thing, and I think almost every single um, runner has probably dealt with this as, at some time. It's one of those things that we, uh, what we see commonly is, is, you know, they get through about two thirds, three quarters of a workout, and they actually start to, you know, kind of like hit this wall, right? Like they're just kind of falling off. And, you know, then they, they get through the workout, and they finish and they're like, man, it's like, you know, it's like, I couldn't go any faster, but I'm not tired at the end. Right. And I've, I'm sure you guys have had athletes that have done that like all the time. And so this is one of the things that I see um, quite commonly is, you know, talking about the, the genetic issues. Right. There, there's about 30 percent of the population that doesn't activate uh, the vitamin B6 um, to its activated form. Well, interestingly enough, for for distance runners and that that activated form of vitamin B6 is actually used to liberate glycogen from your muscles into glucose for utilization as fuel. So why these people are like fully fueled, the glycogen stores are up, they've probably done their carbo loading, you know, done all these kind of things. They actually can't get access to their glycogen because they're actually deficient in this activated form or genetically they just, they might have a pool of, you know, the, the, the inactive B6 in their body, but they actually can't activate it into the usable form. And so they get this kind of bonk effect. And so that's one of those things that I see a lot in, in, I know that you guys talk about it a lot, talk about the mind-body connection. So a lot of people, you know, they, they have these, you know, they get, they get diagnosed as kind of a head case. Oh, they just can't push through the hard part. But oftentimes there are underlying uh, metabolic things that are going on in there. And really the, the, the full B complex is, uh, is one of those things that we see a lot. It's a really simple thing. But traditionally, like if you're going to go to like Whole Foods or, you know, like Walgreens or Costco, and you're going to just buy a B complex off the shelf, most of those aren't actually in their activated form. So your body actually has to take minerals and nutrients out of your body to activate them. And so it can actually run these cycles because the activated forms of your B vitamins are actually called coenzymes and they run reactions in your body. And so 
when you get deficient in those, you actually just have trouble with a lot of reactions. And so, so that's actually one of a, another big thing that we see is just people just deficient in overall B vitamins. And typically that's because, you know, B vitamins are depleted by like stress, caffeine, training, <laughs> alcohol. You know, I think that it's, a, it's all the it's things, all the things, right? <laughs> like all the things that we have all day, every day. And so I think it's important to make sure that we're, we're, you know, topping off the tank or, or looking at those things as well. Um, the, so those are, that's really is this whole like energy cycle, being able to run what's called the Krebs cycle, which is your energy production system in the body is getting it to run efficiently and smoothly is, is really important in distance runners. And a lot of people just have challenges with it, whether it be from just too much, you know, too much stress, bad diet, those kind of things, or just genetics do play a port, uh, like a, a component in that because there are for basically every one of these B vitamins, there is there is a genetic predisposition for, you know, you know, probably 10 to 30% of the population not being able to activate them into their usable form in the body, which they look again, they look good on paper, like for their nutrients, but there's something going on in the body. And that's where the the muscle work and things like we do that that kind of give us another window into that, you know, and so that's what I've always tried to do in the office is, is create, you know, why some of the approaches are like very unconventional, right? <laughs> like, uh, what did I tell you to do? I said, go get a test because yeah. oftentimes like I'm doing this and I'm, I'm a pretty normal dude, you know, and I just like, I'm questionable, like, I yeah, questionable, right? <laughs> the, the, the long hair and the beard, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of throw everybody for right, a loop, right? right? But it's, it's, I, I, I'm doing some of these, you know, like little different techniques on top of, you know, the traditional approach to, to what we do. But I always want to validate what I do. And that's what I've always tried to strive to because I knew I was always going to be up against it, right? Like I do that from the outside, this looks super strange, but <laughs> it's one of those things that through my whole life, since I had been exposed to it, has always worked and has always provided an answer to me. And so I was like, but how can I validate this to, you know, the average person, you know, talking about like MDs and all of that, we have you know, probably 20 or 30 MDs that come into our practice for treatment. So yeah. even though it's, you know, it, it's very unconventional, they're, they're, they're on board because I, you know, we, we give them the validation for, you know, it's like, we're doing this and they're like, seems like, you know, a little bit strange on the outside. But once they go through the whole process, they're like, and, you know, we tell them, you know, like, look at this in your, you know, this is how you look at it through your lens, look at it through your lens. And then, you know, come back and, and we've developed regular clientele with MDs, MDs, kids, you know, all those kind of things. My wife um, being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's funny because, you know, then then we're able to ask questions and, and, and work with like, you know, work on different things and just, you know, have a different approach. And for them, I think it's always nice, too, because they can say, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on. But, you know, check this guy out. It's a little different, but, you know, he can help. We have you know, a group of neurologists, some of the, I do some work with uh, paralysis and uh, neurologically compromised people. We have a group of neurologists and neurosurgeons that when people get to the end of their, their, you know, their, their PT or occupational therapy after some of these, and they're not making, you know, the progress, they're like, you know, check this guy out. It's, it's going to be super different. And, <laughs> but, but all we can say is that, you know, like we have patients who couldn't move their leg and now they're moving their leg. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. So it's <laughs> can't argue with the results. Going back quickly to the supplementation, you, you talked about having non-activated vitamin B in some of these off the shelf products. What can people do from a supplement standpoint if they're looking for options to get decent supplements? Yeah. So, so, um, you know, my background, uh, in my, my undergrad and one of my backgrounds throughout everything has always been nutrition. So, uh, my wife is actually, she just, um, you know, she had some health issues with her running and all of that. 
And she kind of went all over the place trying to to figure out what is what was going on with her health. And, uh, you know, ended up like nutrition and those kind of things were actually some of the things she was able to do to get her health back and get, you know, kind of get her running career to, you know, where she could she could train and, and all of that again. And uh, and so we kind of she got her master's degree in nutrition and functional medicine. Uh, and, and so what we did is we actually said, you know, there's a lot of stuff like there, there's a lot of bad products on the market and there's a lot of like marketing and hype and things like that. We need to create a basic line of products for athletes because, you know, we have all these athletes that are coming in and they're, you know, they're maybe going to a Whole Foods and pulling something off the shelf or they're going to like just going to Costco because it's cheap and they can get a giant bottle for like five dollars. And so we actually um, have started to create our own uh, nutritional supplement line based on the things that come into our office on a regular basis. So, you know, I think it, things that people could do on a daily basis to prevent some of these things. Um, so we, we started uh, our, our product line called the Human Nutrition Project. The first thing we actually started with was uh, like kind of a multi, multivitamin, multi-pack. And that's actually, we, we released that about uh, like two or three months ago. And it contains all of those methylated, phosphorylated, activated B vitamins. And then we did that with a base of um, organ meats. Uh, because organ meats, when you're trying to do minerals in a multivitamin, minerals can be all over the place. And so what we did is we actually took took organ meats and had them powdered down. So, you know, liver and, you know, spleen and those kind of things. Back in the day, people used to eat those things, you know, and as a good source of nutrition because they were bioavailable minerals, those kind of things. And so we actually, we actually had them defatted and powdered down and put them into the, the, this product. And then we actually combined typical amino acids and other things that a runner could just, you know, take a pack of this a day and they could be kind of covering some of the bases. Um, with, with that. So that was one of the, the things where we, when, when we were starting, we're like, okay, you know, typically that what we're talking about, those activated B vitamins are, you know, one of those things that are deficient all the time. So let's, let's just make a product that has all of those in there and, and a, a substantial enough quantity to be able to cover the deficiencies of the training athlete and the stressed person and those kind of things. Um, but also it's not like overkill. That's your paleo packs. Yeah. That's right. our paleo energy power packs that we, yeah. we have. Yep. And then you have one other product you mentioned. So we actually, um, we actually are getting ready to launch an electrolyte product. Um, they, they should be out within the next week or two. Um, they actually just finished the production of it yesterday. They, they text us and said that they got it done. And so typically with you know, electrolyte products, I know we were talking about this the other day um, when you were in, um, talking about you know, a lot of electrolyte products on the market, they're either synthetic um, synthetic minerals or a lot of sugar in there. And so what we did is we took, uh, basically, so like, we, we basically sat down with the science and we said, you know, what does science say about hydration? And so we looked at the world health organization's guidelines for oral rehydration. So typically like if you didn't have access to an IV in a third world country where we said that they would give you a solution like this. And so what we did is we sat down with the science, we looked at the ranges and then we said, you know, what are the most natural ways that we can do that? So we actually took two, um, two different types of salt, uh, a Celtic sea salt and the original Himalayan crystal salt, which both have about 84 trace minerals in them. So on top of the typical sodium, um, potassium, those kind of things, they actually have 84 trace minerals. So it creates a nice like trace mineral uh, supplement it, for, for the body as well. And then we, we combined that with some organic coconut water powder. Um, some sodium and potassium bicarbonate to basically create this this product that is not only an alkaline and can help to buffer lactic acid in the muscles, but helps to 
you know, helps the body to hydrate, get your electrolytes, those kind of things. Because I mean, it's like 175 outside, like at <laughs> right. 9am in Austin right now. So, right. so yeah, so we created that product and we've got a few more that we're working on based on the, the typical products that most people would be using that are just kind of subpar. So we, uh, we wanted to create a, a nice holistic line of sports nutrition products based on t- things that we typically see. Cool. And that's all at thehumannutritionproject.com. So let's go back for a second to common runner problems. One of the things that I deal with frequently, and I've noticed a big difference in seeing you regularly is sort of muscle activation. Yep. Where you know muscles just stop working because you're stressing them in ways that causes them to kind of shut off or the nervous system shuts off because of the stress loads. And so what's happening when that happens and what do you do about it? Yeah, so what, basically what we what we see is is the muscles and the nerves, they kind of act like breaker boxes in your house, right? Like there you, you if you plug in a hairdryer, a curling iron and a straightener all into like one one outlet, it can actually blow those muscles out. And so our muscles kind of function like that in the body. And so, you know, an average person who maybe hasn't, you know, ran like, you know, 10, 15 miles before they go in and they're, they're running this, you know, they're, they're doing this for the first time and it just overloads that circuit. So what we do is we go through and we, we look at each individual muscle nerve connection. And then the, the, the quantum neurology, like rehabilitation process that we do, we know that there are certain areas all over the body that we can actually stimulate why they fire that muscle. And it kind of resyncs this loop with the nervous system, right? So we can, um, we can go through and kind of reconnect this. And so I think it's super interesting, you know, that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's just, you know, my system's overloaded. The average, you know, even like an Olympian. So we work with, you know, like Olympic athletes, we've worked with like NFL players, all those things. When I check people, like check people's muscles, I would say like the average person has anywhere from like 20 to 30, like percent of their muscles, not in a firing state like at all times. So if you're trying to perform at your best, you're, you're kind of starting at 70% because the amount of like force and tension you can generate is going to be reduced. Now it's not enough to have, you know, it's the, the muscles aren't like failing, but it's like just that muscle against resistance. So when you plant that foot and you're trying to push, if that quad isn't firing, you're not going to get a strong of a push. So we kind of look at it like that. We look at it as like this kind of going through and like reconnecting all of the circuits and the breakers in the body. And so we, we go through and and check every you know major muscle group, and then if we find some area, we can actually even dial it down into some of the individual muscle divisions, so we can get as specific as we want to, you know. But a lot of times, it's just kind of that broad, you know, turn everything back on. Like somebody's going to do a lot better, and I think that's how I've got you know working with like elite athletes. That's how we're able to get more out of the athletes is when you're able to to train and race with more you know neuromuscular activation. You're just, it's just going to perform better. So it's a way that, and, and everybody's dealing with it. That, that's the thing is, is everybody has these issues, whether you're a gold medalist in the Olympics or, you know, you're running your first 5k is it's, it's something that every single person is dealing with on some level, shape or form. Dr. Moose, you, uh, I don't know that our listeners really might, I know all of them understand what the muscular system is doing and they all understand what the, the, the skeletal system is doing. Can you give us just a short breakdown of what the heck is happening with our nervous system and what it is? I think it's such it's so important to what you do and it's so misunderstood or just at, frankly not understood at all 
give our listeners a little bit of idea of what that nervous system is doing to our within our bodies, and then what kinds of things you're doing to 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 try to create those to turn those lights back on. Yeah. So so our nervous system is essentially this kind of like it's like a highway of electrical cords in in the body. So from from our brain and our spinal cord, all of the the nerves come out from there. And then they go to our muscles, they go to our organs. It's, it's essentially like, you know, if, I, I think one a great way that people probably understand it is like the fiber optics, like the internet, you know, Google fiber, all that stuff, how they're, they're piping information to and from your computer, you know, to the web and all that. That's kind of what your nervous system is doing. It's, it's, it's channeling information based on your surroundings. So it's kind of this whole system that it takes, you know, it takes a collection of what's going on in your external environment, your internal environment, and it sends it to and from the brain for interpretation. And so what we do is we look at, you know, basically where there's interruptions in that information or where your body's trying to draw back. So, so we always say one of the things that, you know, that, that we talk about in our office a lot is, is your body's never sabotaging itself, right? Like that's, that, that's one thing that I think that people need to understand is our body's always going to prioritize protection and survival. And so this idea of like self-sabotage, why there's, there, there's things that keep, like look like that on the outside, it's actually a developed protective mechanism. So, you know, like if you're running, you know, 15 miles and your body's not ready for it, it's going to be like maybe just 12, <laughs> you know, it's going to give you that limit. And so what we do is we look at why that circuit is getting overloaded and we help to correct it, whether it just be, you know, like showing the brain that this motor pattern is is safe to move in. Or, you know, one of the things if we see, you know, uh, one of the things I see a lot is, you know, different bones in the foot that aren't in place correctly. You know, if there's not a bone in place correctly in the foot, every time you step, it's going to send this pattern or this this message to your brain that's like alert, alert, alert. And it's not going to want you to do it. It would be like you're stepping on a nail, your body, you would want your body to be like, hey, there's a nail there, maybe don't step <laughs> on it. You know, so it's, it's just this interconnected highway, you know, sending messages to and from your in external inter internal environment about, you know, threats and things like that that are going on. And so basically working with it and understanding it and, and enhancing it. And that's what we want. We want our we want our athletes and we want our runners and we want our patients to to increase their threshold. So that's what we're doing on, a you know, as we talk, you know, Chris says, you know, comes in for maintenance and is doing maintenance work like, yeah, you may not have an issue, but if we can identify these things and then go through and, you know, strengthen up his body and find, you know, is there some other things we can do, some other activation we can do to increase his ability to be able to sustain the rigors of running 70, 80, 100 miles a week. Um, that's that's really what we want. What can. For those that don't have access to to somebody with a duck collar, <laughs> what? What can a runner do on their own to try to keep those things firing? Yeah, so so I think, you know, one of the things that, that's really important, I, I think, for people on their own is is you can work with some movement therapists that, you know, can can identify faulty movement patterns in your body. And I think that, like that's a really good thing that, that people can do is is identifying areas they maybe don't move as well. The other thing is, 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 you know, not everybody uses the, the instrument I do. So there's, there's people like all over the country that do like the quantum neurology rehabilitation and the applied kinesiology. And so you can, you can look for somebody who, who maybe specializes in, in one of those techniques to help to, to, to work through that. You know, the other thing is, is the fascial system is essentially this interconnected webbing that comes 
off of the nerves, at least in my opinion. I don't know that they validated that, but that's kind of my 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 hypothesis is that the fascia is just an extension of a uh, uh, of the nervous system that's basically sending messages in and out of that. So you know, massage and myofascial release and those kind of things are are all great modalities to. Uh, to strengthen up the body and, and be able to do that if you maybe don't have somebody who does some of these things in, in there. But I think working on on movement patterns, identifying like faulty movement patterns, you know, getting massage, you know, making sure nutrition is, is, is on point, make sure you're getting enough protein, you're getting the right, you know, raw materials in your body to, um, to, to balance this out. So, so yeah, I, I think that those are some big things that, that people can do as well, just on a daily basis is it's just, working on those movement patterns. Steve, you want to ask the next one? Sure. This is right up my alley, man. Um, you know, N- Dr. Moose, that I, uh, I've always been somebody who kind of likes to fuck with people's heads. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and sometimes it seems malicious on the outside, but always it's coming from a place of love and asking people to sort of push the outside edge or to push the barrier of what they think is known. And you and I have spent many hours and had many beers talking about the mind-body connection in terms of how our how the things we think and the way we um, use our brains plays out into what goes on in our body. Um, what what kinds of things do you look for or look at when you look at, when you think about what your athletes thinking? And how does that play out kind of in their bodies and then how you might choose to, to try to get them to change or to adjust or, or what kind of ways do you look at that? How do you see it playing out in your practice? Yeah, so, so I actually use a, uh, a technique um, called neuroemotional technique. And so what that, it's kind of interesting, it's combined... Um, basically the stress response that happens in our body with Chinese medicine. And so interesting thing in Chinese medicine, as we talk about like the meridians and all of that, there's all emotions associated with each one of the meridians in the body. So what we what what we're looking at with this is we're, we're looking at, you know, what does the stress pattern do to the body? You know, because a, a lot of people, you know, there, there's, you know, the whole like psychology and, and, and psychologic realm and all of that. And like, I think like sports psychology and all of that is like, so important. But in my practice, what I'm really concerned about is what does the stress do to the body? Um, and so kind of interesting, the, the system that we use, what we'll do is, you know, we'll have the, the patient like, you know, kind of think about a stressful event and, and, you know, we'll take like the starting line of a race, right? Because that is if, if nobody, everybody, a lot of people who are listening have been there, <laughs> probably the most, Natalie and I talk about this all the time when we're faced with like a stressful situation, we're like, there's nothing more stressful than standing on the starting line waiting for the gun to go off, right? <laughs> So true. So, so let's let's take let's take like being on the starting line for you know instance. Now there's there's a million different emotions, things like that that are going on in the body. But what I'm concerned about is what what stress response is going on in the body. And so the technique that we did is that we do is actually super cool. They actually just finished up a study at Thomas Jefferson University Medical School on it. And what they did is they actually took cancer survivors and they had them write out their diagnosis. And then while they were in the fMRI machine, they actually read their, their word for word, you know, description of their diagnosis and what happened. And then they did fMRI of the brain. And what they did is they wanted to see what areas of the brain were, were activated, what was going on inside of the brain and, and, and all of that. And so 
what they they saw is you know there was definitely the typical stress centers that we would associate with the brain but one interesting finding that they found is actually the cerebellum which is the part of your brain that controls movement it is actually activated by these negative stress responses as well. So we know that actually stress can impact like our ability to move and function because you can see it clearly on an MRI that it like it increases this activation inside the cerebellum. And so what they did is they actually went through and did this technique and then they re they did six treatments with these patients and then they went through and rescanned the patient and they actually showed that it it kind of calmed down that entire stress response in in the body. And so that's kind of what we're doing with our patient. We say, you know, we have them, you know, we're kind of do some visualization of what that, uh, what, what that, you know, speed on the starting line and all of that. And then we do our, you know, the, the test, the muscles, see what kind of muscles blow out. And I'm less, you know, I'm less concerned about the situations of the, the, you know, what's going on in the body and more about what the, the stress is producing in the body. And then what we can do is we can go through and, and make neuromuscular corrections you know, we can uh, treat acupuncture points that are associated with that. Why this patient is actually kind of, you know, really focusing on the feeling of what it feels like to be on that starting line. And so our goal with that is actually just to strengthen up their body's ability to, to, to handle that stress, you know, because the stress is going to be there. We can't escape from the stress. You know, oftentimes we can't change the stress. We're going to have to go through it. So if our body is stronger and more resilient to that, we can... We, we can help to, to kind of balance them out so they, they have less of a, a stress response to a stressful situation because ultimately in training, basically the things we're trying to combat is like inflammation and stress are the two things that we're, you know, like recovery, we're trying to, uh, we're, we're trying to, 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 to mitigate, so. Noah, we, we, uh, we lost one of my absolute heroes yesterday. Um, and Anthony Bourdain, who we believe committed suicide, this has nothing to do with running, but I think you wrote an article recently about sort of, so like basically not just suicide, but depression and things that might lead someone that way. And you, you're, you're, you talked about progesterone having a, an effect on that. Can, I, I just think the timeliness of this is something I'd like to bring up. Cause I do know more athletes than I, than people realize deal with depression and deal with depressive thoughts. Can you go into that a little bit just because I'm it's so in my heart what 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 happened with Anthony Bourdain? Yeah, so so one of the things, you know, we we're talking about stress, right? So like if you ever looked at like a hormone chart and how the body like flows from like through all of the hormones, how all the hormones are made, developed, produced and stuff like that, there's there's kind of this critical point where your body's either going to go into the anabolic side of all those like that hormone production and all that or you're going to go into the catabolic side of that and progesterone is kind of that mediator right like it's it's you're either going to go from progesterone into like the estrogens testosterones all those kind of things or you're going to cortisol and so what's going to happen is is depending on the athlete's stress level you know it's like they're either going to shunt all of their progesterone and those kind of things down to uh, down to cortisol, which is the stress hormone. For people who aren't familiar with that, um, they're gonna sh you're gonna shunt to that, or you're gonna go there. And so one of the things that and and this just I I I had this experience in my office, um, and it's just it stuck with me so much. Is I had I had a teenage I had a teenage athlete come in, and you know she's having a lot of struggles. Like like her and her mom basically had like a blowout in my waiting room, right? Like they're like yelling at each other. They're like. <laughs> 
you know, they're like arguing and, and, you know, I'm in the other room and I was like, man, what is going on in my waiting room? <laughs> you know, like, and, and then, you know, they come in and we start talking and, you know, they're like uh, they're telling the girls like low energy and, you know, she's not performing like she should. And, and there's no, there's no indication of like, depression or anything no mention of that at all like in the history or anything you know she's like easily agitated all these kind of things and so we start talking and i do my work up and i i ask her i'm like i'm like are you are, are you dealing with some depression and this girl just broke down in tears in my office and and i was like so we did some work up and i was like you know i think it's there there's a little bit of a hormonal component to it so i was like let's just get a blood test and see what's going on and this girl's progesterone was tanked so we referred her out to her medical doctor. Her medical doctor was like, whoa, this is like, you know, like super low. We, she got, she got the, the problem corrected, you know, and, and, you know, we worked on like trying to balance that, that conversion of progesterone to, to cortisol more into some of the, you know, the female hormones and, and all of that. So she could, she was having trouble with cycles and all of that too. And we, you know, we, we asked her what was going on. So we just supported her with some general nutrition that would help her to make energy we, you know, we're talking about, she was anemic too. Um, so we helped her with the anemia and then we just kind of worked on the body. The next time she came in, I was like, me and my receptionist, it was like this, like whole thing. We're like, who is this kid? <laughs> like she was like laughing and she was joking. She was so happy. And, uh, you know, I just remember just like, just having like, it was such a great treatment. Right. And it was like, I was like, this is really, you know, like really great. And, you know, as we're, as they're walking out, like to the, to the front desk and all that, her mom just turns around and she just, you know, does the prayer hands and is like, thank you so much. Mm. And it's one of those things that that, that, that has actually stuck with me for a long time. And that's kind of why I wrote that article. I, I think we wrote it like it was either like suicide, you know, prevention week or prevention month. And, you know, we'd had, I I'd started to see all these friends posting about, you know, run, cause you know, the runner running community is a, is a tight knit community. It's a small community. We all know each other. Um, you know, everybody knows everybody. And, uh, you know, I'm starting to look at like, you know, people posting past photos of like people that like I know and like people that I've ran with and people that, you know, we've hung out with after meets and, and, and stuff like that, that, that have taken their lives. And so I think that it's, it's one of those things that like, I'm so passionate about trying to make sure that we're doing everything for the human body so that, so each person can have their optimal experience right like they they can they can have those great races they can you know i i mean i can remember right those magical races that we all have i want everybody to know what it feels like to just feel like you're effortlessly floating but then also to be able to deal with the the, the stresses that come with daily life you know and being able to handle you know all the stresses so that's our whole goal in our office is to to build up the human body to be able to to, to strengthen with that so i think it's important for us to identify those stress triggers and be able to to find a way to mitigate that, whether it be, you know, working with a therapist, working with, you know, like getting the nutrition balanced, you know, finding again, that team, you got to You got to have that team around you. And I think that the, I, I think people don't give stress enough credit. And I think that's one of the big things is, is people like everybody's stressed. And yeah, we all are stressed, but it's okay to admit that you have stress and maybe you're not handling it very good or that you need help. And there, there's no, there's no shame in admitting I need help. Like I'm struggling with, you know, this and, you know, and, and, and try to work with somebody who can help you get answers to that. Cause it's, it's all too often now that we're seeing like, you know, like losing like amazing, amazing people that have done so many amazing things that we like, it, it's just so unfortunate that we, we see that. Well, and it's also just interesting to know that, 
sometimes it's these imbalances that are causing these issues there it's a it's a physical as well as a mental component and you fix some of those deficiencies or issues or pathways that are wrong or interrupted and and that can create a huge difference yeah i think it's it's really important to for for people who are struggling to like to realize that that oftentimes there is there is an answer even though in, and i know in a lot of those situations people they they really you know they've tried different things and they've been different places and stuff like that and they they start to to think that it's it's just them and it's just like it it's it's so often just not there's just there's something missing so it's like keep working keep striving keep looking keep talking to people and uh you know let people know somebody's going to be able to to hopefully help to get you in that direction and so you know before you know i i think it's just knowing that things can be done like to, to help that should be really empowering for a lot of people one of the things that i love about you is that you're super curious guy that's always learning new things always going to conferences learning new things and and so it seems like every time in your office you're telling me about some new thing you've learned or figured out. And one of the things we were talking about recently, which I think is pretty interesting and topical for for parents, especially who have kids that are in sports and you know whether it be soccer, football, or anything that might have head injuries related to it. That's a big topic right now. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid playing soccer, they didn't think about us heading the ball at eight or nine years old and now you it's a penalty if you head the ball because they're trying to protect kids brains and obviously you have parents trying to make decisions about tackle football and whether or not that makes sense for their kid with the potential risks but you were talking about some studies you've been doing on the nervous system with football players and how there are different light therapies and things that can actually help mitigate some of the issues caused by collisions so talk a little bit about that just because I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. So uh, last summer, we had the opportunity to uh, go down to New Orleans. There was a group of about like 10, like 10 or so doctors that went down there. And there's this large um, football camp that it's a lot of the a lot of the top athletes, um, basically from like like junior high up to, to high school that uh, that they're playing in this this it's basically like a like a four day camp. And then they play. Uh, that they play games and stuff um, at the end of the camp. And it was called the, the Brain Shock Project. And essentially what we were looking at is, you know, what effect does like just daily like interaction with football have like on the nervous system, right? Like, and we had, so basically what we did is we set up some parameters. We set up uh, like a, a typical, I, I would say it's fairly typical of a, a new patient exam that we would do with uh, the quantum neurology rehabilitation process that we do um, in our office. And so we checked, you know, we would check all the, we had basically like 500 kids that came through when we, we had a chance to like analyze, uh, like every one of their like, like patterns and all that. And we, we made record of it and all that. And then we got a chance to, um, we either did like a, with, with some light therapy and some of the activation. So we use low level light therapy, um, over like certain areas of the body, typically the brain stem and that area, why we do these do these corrections and so people always ask you know it's like i you've seen it in my office i've got like the little light therapy device that sits on top of your head while you're while you're working and all of that and so light therapy actually increases the cellular communication in the body they've shown that with like nasa studies and um, cold laser therapy and all of that it increases the atp activation in the body so 
essentially what we're doing with that is we're just it's kind of like I, I always tell people like the easy way to understand you know what we're doing with the light therapy is it's kind of like when you have to update your iPhone and you don't have enough battery they're like you know plug your iPhone into the wall a lot of times we've got a lot of stresses we've got a lot of things that are going on in the body and we actually can't you know update our software which is our whole nervous system and all of that so the light therapy actually just provides an extra input of energy in there so we actually have um, some patients that received the light therapy care and then other ones we had the lights there but we didn't turn them on and we had them covered so like in a way that the the patient really couldn't you know see so we were trying to to see you know what effect does light therapy have on on this 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 standardized procedure that we that we do so we looked at essentially the the neuromuscular system and then we analyzed um, some of the cranial nerves as well which the for people who aren't familiar with the cranial nerves they're basically everything that deals with sight sound hearing they, they go into the brainstem and they, they kind of help to regulate a lot of our sensory awareness in the head. Uh, one of the things with doing rehabilitation with the cranial nerves, we've actually seen awesome changes in like post-concussive symptoms and, and things like that. So we went through and we did this and, you know, we saw that the kids that were receiving the, the care with light therapy were able to, they're, 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 when they were doing follow-up testing by different sets of doctors that, you know, had no idea what had been found before that a large majority of them were holding their corrections better and all of that. And then, you know, obviously at the end of the, the study, like all the kids ended up getting treated. So, you know, it was like a nice way that we could, we could give back and, and, you know, help this younger generation. But it, it's kind of cool to see that there are things that we can do um, as far as rehabilitation processes um, with concussion and head injuries and stuff like that, because it's kind of like we were talking before, right? Like the nervous system is this like, breaker box um, of our body. And so the brain is the same way. And uh, the cranial nerves are a great way to evaluate that we can see, you know, it's not necessarily like there's any like, like, major neurological dysfunction, but if there's a weakness in a certain cranial nerve with the evaluation, and then we can balance it back out, it's obviously going to strengthen up the the brain's ability to recover and, uh, and balance out. And I'm, I'm, I'm I would be really interested, you know, in future studies to see, you know, how that affects the inflammatory load and all that, because really what's happening when you have head injuries is it's creating a focal inflammation in the brain. And we know that like inflammation in the brain leads to things like Alzheimer's, dementia, changes that we see, you know, when you see the CTE, right? Those things that they, that, that Ben and Amalu found um, in the brain when he dissected the brain, those, those different changes that can be the identifier of CTE, you know, it, it's basically about how do we regulate the, the intracranial or the, the brain inflammation and so with these impact sports, it's, it's just when you have these, the, these impacts, it causes ruptures in the blood-brain barrier, which causes um, cytokines, which are the inflammatory chemicals in the body, to raise in that area. And it just, over time, it just basically degrades the, the nervous system tissue. So we were just looking at ways that, you know, if kids are, because, you know, we live in Texas, right? You know, people are going to play football. <laughs> Until right. they tell you, you right. can't play football, you know. <laughs> and I know it's, it's, it's you know, it, it, the, the numbers are definitely down. I mean, I, well, a big part of my practice in the fall is treating football players on a, uh, on a weekly basis. You know, we have, you know, the, some of the top high school programs in the nation that back up into my, <laughs> into the backyard of my office. And so we, we see a lot of these kids and, you know, our whole goal is to just try to, they're, they're going to play. How can we keep them healthier? You know, it's like, if, if, and then, you know, maybe there are ways that we can do this, that, that, you know, we, we can find some remedies before you know somebody's dealing with cte or brain injuries or things like that and so the study the the, the kind of work you know we got to give back to the community and stuff like that help some kids that maybe not have access to these kind of things but we also got some really good information that 
that light therapy and some of these rehabilitative processes actually can have um, a, a, a good effect on, on some of the symptomatology and some of the indicators that, uh, that affect the brain. It's fascinating. Well, we've already kept you for an, almost an hour and 10 minutes, Dr. Moose, and we know you have to catch a flight. So we're going to wrap it up. But thank you for coming on and sharing. You know, I think the moral of the story is don't be afraid of guys with duck collars on there. <laughs> On their on their belts, alternative medicine and integrative medicine, and some of the other modalities you talked about can be real assets and tools for our listeners if they find somebody in those fields to help with their their performance. If you live in Austin, you can you can go check out Doctor Moose at his practice at which is called Health Plus ATX. Yeah, healthplusaustin.com is the website. Yeah, in B Caves off in Westlake or off of B Caves in Westlake. And then, of course, we mentioned the human, the human nutrition project.com, which is where you can find some of those supplements that you talked about. Thank you very much for coming on, sir. This has been fascinating, as always. It would, and we're talking to you. Yeah, always, always great to, to sit down and chat. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, there you go. The fascinating Dr. Noah Moose. Hopefully, you learned something there. Hopefully, you also thought and questioned everything you might know about traditional medicine. And it might just encourage you to reach out and at least consider some alternative providers, particularly those who might have recommendations from other runners in your life. You never know what you might learn. It certainly takes a village and we encourage you to continue to build your medical team supporting your running as a part of that athlete ownership that we've talked about before. So there you go. That's episode 78. As always, you can check us out on our website, roguerunning.com, or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.